This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen. Uh, Let's talk about sex. And Jen is here with me. How are you doing today? Doing good. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a subject that I've had a lot of experience with, I'd say, in the last 30 years. And it's uh, sexual uh, abuse of children uh, by teachers. And we may talk a little bit about sexual abuse of children by other children, but it's really about sexual abuse in our schools and what we can do about it. Just to start out, I I think all of us uh, need to be informed about it. It's really a hidden problem uh, until it strikes your child or your cl- the, the classroom you're dealing with or a fellow teacher that you're working with. But roughly uh, one out of 200 teachers uh, are engaging in sexually abusive activities with children. This has been reported by a number of studies and uh, in the educational journals. And it indicates that uh, a quarter of all the school districts, at least a quarter, currently have an abusing teacher. So uh, with this this in mind, it makes it everybody's problem. And uh, it was brought home to me recently because I have a wonderful little grandson who lives in Sacramento. And a school nearby, um, just blocks away from where my little grandson lives, was uh, discovered to have an abusing, actually, after-school program head there. And uh, it was uh, many, many children were abused, little children, by this person. And it brought up for me that I could be the grandmother and, you know, involved in this situation. And I had to meet with a lot of grandmothers who were involved in it. So it was personally very relevant and also painful. But I've worked with hundreds of uh, children who've been abused in school and many, many abusing teachers. Maybe, Jen, you want to start out and talk a little about the characteristics of abusing teachers. Sure. Um, Before I go into that, though, I just want to bring up kind of that actually there aren't that many studies that talk about this. And that was one of the big problems, which is why it was so hidden. And what happened actually was that under the um, No Child Left Behind Act, it was amended to include a requirement that they do this educator sexual misconduct study. And that's how Mm. a lot of these statistics came about. But prior to that, it was really hush-hush and nobody had talked about it. And people were shocked by the results that that Mm. the numbers were as high as you're talking about. And so there is question, there are questions around whether or not it might actually be even more prevalent because only about 50% of the people that um, were reached um, the superintendents, I believe it was, were the ones surveyed. Only about 50% responded. Well, my experience with superintendents around uh, child abuse situations is that they often uh, know the letter of the law, so to speak. 
but they don't necessarily follow through with mandated reporting on nor do the teachers and principals within districts. And some of this is, I think, not wanting to believe that these things are actually going on. It's hard to believe that a fellow colleague or worker or a teacher in a school could be engaged in these activities. And often they're friends. Yes, yes. And, you know, we've talked about um, those who sexually abuse in other discussions, but, but, you know, one of the things is many individuals who abuse look like all of the rest of us, and uh, they're friendly, they're charming, and uh, teachers who abuse are particularly known to be engaging and have skills with kids. So that's probably the first red flag, and it doesn't mean all those wonderful teachers out there are in this category. I, I want to give the caveat that my mother was a, a teacher my entire growing up, a wonderful math teacher, yeah. and she also taught fourth grade, and I thought Teachers were just the top of the line. <laughs> oh, yeah. Teachers have a really hard job. And this isn't meant to, you know, be negative towards all teachers because there are many fantastic teachers out there and they're not getting the credit that they they deserve and have earned. But it is it is a fact that there are certain teachers that are abusing. And I think it's very important that we be able to learn how to distinguish this and be able to take this problem seriously because it affects so many lives. And so going back to kind of what you were going into is the characteristics. You know, you mentioned a lot of them are very charismatic. They're often very popular. They're popular often too because they have a youthful quality about them. You know, they seem forever young, even though they're not young in age. And and when you say that, you know, many of uh, the men, and I'd say probably of uh, abusing teachers that we know of, uh, about 94% are, are men. Um, many of them identify themselves as being like the children or like the teenagers, and uh, they don't see the big age gap between themselves and these younger uh, people. Yeah. And then, um, you know, a big part of it often is, is it is a long process. There's often a grooming process. So it's not like the sexual abuse happens right away. But or the physical abuse, you know, but really there are small things that you can look out for, particularly teachers, you know, giving gifts is a huge one. And the gift can be as simple as like candy. You know, they're giving out a lot of candy in the classroom. And I know teachers use that for incentive. Yeah. But you have to think really about how it's being used and what's it being used for. And I think, you know, just talking about some of the signs, you know, so that's one of them but also wanting a lot of time alone with one particular student, you know, before or after school, even in the more egregious cases that we've seen, you know, inviting them to their house, to the teacher's house, that is. Media has become a huge part of this whole process. So texting back and forth or, you know, Instagram or some version of social media. That and, is and what parents private. might look for here would be... um that they might look for does their their teacher or their child's teacher have a special relationship online with right. their child if they find a separate phone that the mm -hmm. child has been given mm -hmm. you know that's often a tactic that goes on there and it's a it's a reason i think to inspect even with the children who are quite young and you might not think this is going on but teachers uh, abuse all ages 
So we've worked with kids third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade with online relationships with teachers uh, where they're grooming them for some sexual activity. And and the huge part of the grooming process is building trust. So particularly with the young kids, teachers that abuse will reach out to parents and build a trusting relationship with the parents. And so I think that's an important red flag. So it's hard because you don't want to just not trust anybody. You also do have to pay attention to, you know, what are their ulterior motives here? Right. Um, Other things that parents and other teachers can look for is uh, covered uh, windows in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Because I would say almost all of the abusing teachers that I've worked with, and it's been more than a 100, the classroom windows either don't exist or they bank out on trees or forests that nobody can access or they're totally covered uh, with dark paper if they're visible, including the window on the door. I would add to that really you know, not being invited to the classroom. That's often a big red flag is, you know, why am I not invited to my child's classroom? Exactly. Or parents being discouraged. Yeah. Really from attendance. And um, parents need to be in the classrooms. Principals need to be in the classrooms. There needs to be an interactive format where the there, one person doesn't have total control really, of these children's lives. Often what happens is because, you know, the classroom is fairly isolated because the teacher has cultivated that environment, they can get away with more, you know, and and kids notice, but they don't necessarily know what is happening. And so often it comes out later, oh yeah, this teacher played super favorites with a certain group of kids or one child and you know there's just different things like the closet use of the closet and kids going in the closet for different reasons this reminds me jennifer of how seldom children make up the story that uh they are being sexually abused or they're witnessing sexual abuse and it have it not be true and a lot of the abusing teachers will say oh these kids lie all the time And so in reality, when kids are saying, this teacher is a perv, they're doing these activities, because these are the words kids use, Mm -hmm. um, really, again, we're going back to a high statistic, 92% of these cases and these children coming forward are accurately telling the story and maybe even higher. Yeah. So you've really got to look and listen to kids. Kids are honest in this area. Although I think out there exists the myth that kids are going to make up a story and an innocent teacher is going to be sent away. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. Yeah, I mean, that actually popped into my head just as you were saying it, because it it is so important to us talking about this, you know, is fighting those myths. And I think what's really fascinating to me is the way that these behaviors are described. They're not necessarily seen as a sexual thing by the younger child, but as an adult, we hear what they're describing and you can see that it's grooming for sexual behaviors or they're having kids pose a certain way for photos that kids who aren't educated about sexuality don't don't understand our sexual positions or that they're going to be used as sexual tools and they might be working on the school yearbook the teachers so have the you know certain groups girls or boys pose in certain kind of sexualized ways Um, many of these offending teachers have huge libraries of photographs of children 
So you have to think about how this develops and how children in a classroom could be used in that way. And children also don't recognize that touching can be highly sexual. So children's private parts can be touched, you know, in a classroom setting, you know, under and above clothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be done even in front of other children at movie time or up at the desk when the teacher's giving them special time for homework. Story time is exactly. another big one. And uh, so it's something, I think, to really be aware of. And it's not talked about. No, it's not talked about. And I think another thing that isn't talked about related to that is that the students that are, that are abused are in some ways chosen. They're, they're groomed for, they're selected. And so to, to pay attention to kind of what, what are they looking for? They're looking for kids who aren't going to speak out and, and they'll do kind of small tests to see who would say something here, who would not say something here. You know, you had brought up, you know, who are the children at risk? And I think that's important to talk about too. Exactly. Um, for parents listening or even for high school, middle school kids listening. If you notice a friend is spending a lot of time alone with the teacher and the door is closed and, you know, then the door can even sometimes be locked and a friend will go and knock on the door and know their friend's in there with the teacher, that kind of thing. Special ed kids are at very high risk because they can't talk back. Right. Um, little children, mm-hmm. you know, uh, transitional kindergarten, kindergarten kids are at risk because they can't talk back. And, you know, people say, well, they are not being abused because they don't know it was abuse. As children grow, they understand what has happened to them. So the awareness of these abusive activities grows along with their age. Mm -hmm. So these are very, very abusive activities to do with children. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, along with that, another pattern I'm seeing is before I saw more of a pattern where teachers would kind of choose kids who are more troublemakers so that, you know, when when this child who is seen as a, quote, troublemaker speaks up about the abuse, they're more likely, you know, to be believed to be lying because it's like, well, they cause trouble all the time, so they're probably lying about this as well. Whereas I'm starting to see a pattern more now of kids who are straight-A students, you know, very good students, but who follow the rules kind of to a T and see the teacher as kind of on a pedestal and are, are taught to kind of look at teachers as the source of direction and not to question what's going on. I'm seeing that happen more frequently. Absolutely. The good child, the compliant child who will not oppose the teacher because the teachers say things like, I could get in trouble if this happens. The teachers sometimes disclose their private life to the children and the teachers threaten the child and their parents. So all of this is part of keeping this secret. So I I agree with you. I think Kids need to be educated not only about good touch, bad touch, but what's the process of adults engaging in these behaviors with kids? I think to build on everything that we've talked about, too, is to to add the important thing of one of the things that came out of this study about the educator sexual misconduct was that there were really kind of two groups of abusers. So one was the group that was more about pedophilia. But then there was another group that was identified that was 
categorized as the romantic bad judgment abusers and that there are different kind of mentalities and mindsets for these different groups. Right. And you'll see that, uh, you know, in the pedophiles can really work at any age level. But the romantic a teacher arrangement, uh, and it's often with girls, but it can be with boys too. And um, it is often with girls in seventh or eighth grade. And the girl has developed, the teacher pays attention to her uh, sexually and appearance-wise and kind of grooms her in this process. And I think a lot of parents of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders are not prepared uh, for the in- the teacher who they trust engaging in this type of activity. Right. And, you know, all this actually came up. You know, the reason I was thinking we need to talk about teacher abuse is because I had a client bring up that there was a rumor going around the school about one of the teachers possibly having abused one of the students. And it was really interesting because one of her first comments to me is like, oh, I wouldn't be surprised. And I asked her, well, you know, that's interesting. You know, why wouldn't you be surprised? And she talked about, oh, well, you know, this teacher often gives the the boys these looks. You know, she gives them these sort of sexual looks and she'll play favorites with the boys and just a lot of the little things that we talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. and... So my client brought it up because she had gone to her principal and and said, you know, I heard this rumor. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm concerned and I think it's something you should look into. And her parents had been very against it, saying, you know, well, you could get yourself in trouble. What if your name comes out? The teacher might retaliate against you. And it was very interesting because they weren't supporting her in bringing forward what could be a serious issue. And she was very conflicted because she trusts her parents. And so she came to me wanting to process, like, I feel I've done the right thing, but my parents are saying that I didn't. And my principal is saying that I did, and now I don't really know how I feel about all of this. And you bring up the fact that the kids are often caught around this. Many children do tell somebody about this if they've witnessed it or if they've been part of it. But I think it's how we hear really what kids say around this. Really following along here, we really need to look at what happens after a report and um We're all familiar that beginning actually in 1978 in some states, and, you know, that was in New York, but then in other states at a later point, teachers, principals, school workers are all mandated reporters. So that means that they have to make a phone call if they have a reasonable suspicion that a reasonable person under reasonable circumstances would think the behavior is abusive. It's important to call in. But I would encourage anyone to make those calls. It doesn't have to be only the mandated. If you think this is going on, you need to get help. And uh, Child Protective Services is really one of the first lines that people work with. Or you can call the police, talk to the principal, you know, or a couple of those different things to make it work, I think. If a teacher has been criminally convicted of child abuse in a classroom setting or outside the classroom, then their license can be suspended and taken away. But with civil cases, which is how a lot of this goes, um, not necessarily so. So one of the problems, I think, out there is that a teacher will have allegations made against them. They're really very valid. 
but the teacher leaves the school or they promote the teacher to another school and uh, it's a kind of passing around of a teacher who they don't want really in their district. So I think this whole issue of how can we follow up when there have been allegations of abuse by kids, what type of tracking mechanism is available, and how we can support our states, you know, really with what they have to do to make our uh, our schools safe. That's really important. Well, I think the layperson also doesn't understand how hard it is to get rid of a teacher, even if there is, you know, a civil conviction or, I mean, if they win in, in court, you know. And so I think it's important to talk about that because people don't realize that these teachers are moved from districts, that a lot of times they're very popular in the community, the the abusing teacher that is. A lot of times they may have won some kind of community award for their behavior and that other teachers often come to the aid of this teacher and will rally around the teacher saying that the district is against teachers and build up this whole pressure. And so, you know, when when a student comes out about abuse, whether it be witnessing abuse or personally being the abused victim, they have a lot of pressure to kind of take back what they've said. A lot. Um, You mentioned a lot of the things that stand on the other side there, but one of them are the teachers' unions, and we teachers need unions to really protect their work. But it's a very big concern when the teachers' unions end up protecting teachers who have engaged in repetitive abuse of children. And uh, it raises questions, I think, for all of us in all districts to be thinking about. Um, I know that uh, Kamala Harris, when she was here in California, did some very good work uh, on addressing some of these concerns in our schools. And there's a division here in Sacramento that continues to work on that. And it's so important because as we talked about, it's so much more prevalent than people recognize. So I think in, in closing some of these things, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, obviously it's fantastic if you can recognize signs before abuse happens, but that still doesn't happen as frequently. So I think if we talk a little bit about what are some of the signs that someone is being abused, I think that could be helpful. Right. And I think often the kids will share with uh, usually the mother that the teacher did something that is different or they didn't expect. And this is where it's important to listen to your child, to ask them questions, maybe have them draw a picture of it, You know, that's a good, that's a technique I often use, but parents can sure use it. And, you know, to then ask around, I think, talk to other parents, try to figure out what's going on, get more information, uh, because this really helps with this kind of thing. Bedwetting can also start in younger children, a rebellion uh, from the parents, because the grooming process isolates children from their parents. Right. Fears, nightmares. Sometimes they'll write an essay or story, you know, that says how scared they were. So pay attention to their artistic work. And then if your child is becoming more isolated or undergoing really personality changes like depression, anxiety, all of those things are important signs of abuse taking place. That's what I was going to bring up is super intense mood swings. Sometimes there's sudden changes in eating habits. 
what else? Sometimes fears crop up around certain places or people that, you know, without context seem very confusing and just random. I agree. I think, you know, another thing to pay attention to that is something that I've tracked is sudden gifts. You know, your your child suddenly has all these toys or or gifts or, you know, hats or whatever, and it's like where where did this come from? You know, and if they don't have a clear kind of answer, being able to push that a little bit and going like, okay, wh- where is this coming from? What what could be going on? Because the gifts, I think, is a huge part of the grooming a lot of time. I think if you hear them talking about themselves in very negative language, that's another big sign where maybe they weren't talking about themselves that way before. And we're we're really talking about the signs of sexual abuse and you know it's not necessarily the teacher who's the abuser it is more commonly somebody the child knows you know and that's why I think of our good touch bad touch education we really have to educate them that it's going to be somebody you know doing this and that's a bit of a different story We'll come back to this topic again, Jennifer, because I I think we've just started really with it, and we could talk more specifically about abuse in elementary school, you know, abuse in uh, middle school is a huge problem, and then those romantic or pseudo-romantic relationships that are said to develop in high school. I agree, because I think there are differences to each of them. There are similarities that we've kind of gone over here in brief, but there are also differences that are important to highlight. Yeah. Thank you for encouraging us to talk about this. Yeah, I know it's not easy. Thank you, Lynn. Take care. Check us out on Twitter at TalkingSexPod. We also now have a Facebook page. It's called Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. And the address is www.facebook.talkingsexpod.com. And also, remember to subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes so you can stay connected and keep that conversation going. If you have any questions or suggestions or just want to chat with us, you can email us at info at And as always, thank you for listening.